0: Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. But we realize that whenever Reformation happens in the history of the church, things get messy. And after the last couple of synods, nobody's going to disagree that things are really getting messy in the Christian Reformed Church. So we're having conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We're dropping episodes every single Sunday evening. It's also important for you to know that you are our marketing plan. We rely on you to spread the word about what we're doing at the Messy Reformation. We rely on you to share our content. We also rely on you to give us five-star reviews and provide good feedback for our podcast so that the algorithms push our content out into the world. You are our marketing plan. You can also support us financially on Patreon or Substack. All of the money raised is used to fund online hosting and build the platform of the Messy Reformation. You may even see a Messy Reformation conference coming in 2024. So keep your eyes peeled for an announcement. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part two of our conversation with Drew Huckema.
1: Well, I appreciate the question. My story's probably a little bit different. Um, Being a child of the covenant, I didn't actually experience regeneration until later in my teen years, Jason, as you well know, and Plenty of our listeners know at this point, too. But uh, that meant that um, faith was taken seriously by my family, but not necessarily by me. Uh, So even, you know, the church I attended, um, attended Sunday school, was given the means of grace uh, from infancy. I went to the Christian school, um, you know, kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, but I never really took hold of my faith at all and the promises that were made to me in my baptism until I was 17. So my context was different in that sense. Um, I didn't come to appreciate the Reformed faith and the Reformed tradition until others, such as yourself, started really teaching me and pouring into me and discipling me, um, not just to know God's Word better, although that was that was a primacy, obviously, but it was also to understand our reformed faith and confessions better. And once I picked them up, I couldn't put them down. Uh, and to this day, still haven't put them down. I mean, I could tilt my shelf and and you know, there sits Burkhoff, there sits Bavink. Um, and then you get you get even like Cornelius Van Til, Greg Bonson. Um, these these people articulate the truth of the reformed faith. And I would say the broader scope of what scripture says in a way that these other authors from different denominations, you know, don't emphasize. Um, I think they emphasize, you know, things like the kingdom of God as a whole, his sphere sovereignty. I think these things are, are more prevalently taught in the reformed faith and tradition. And I think we're in a unique place in history where as a denomination goes, The conservatives, I wouldn't say we're taking ground, but we've established that the ground here is is ours, um, at least most of the way. Um, But there's still areas of reformation that need to be done. Um, And that's kind of why we started this podcast. So that's why it's 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 not just because of my lack of Dutch reformed history, because I'm obviously not Dutch, but (laughs) it's my it's my love for the Dutch reformed theology. Um, that keeps me here and keeps my purpose in this denomination um, at the forefront. That's my story. Yeah. And
0: that's that's helpful because I think it connects with uh, some of what Drew was pointing at. And I suppose maybe I'll just take it back to one of my hobby horses, but a lot of it ties back to discipleship Mm -hmm. um, for you. It, It was discipleship in God's word and the confessions and um, yep. the, and, and good discipleship, not just like, hey, we're gonna teach you. <laughs> I I should not be, I should be careful because I'm kind of tooting my own horn because I'm the one that discipled you. But... You're such a good discipler. <laughs> <laughs> but but it wasn't just we're gonna teach this to you because this is what we have to do or what we should do, or this is what CRC people do, but we're gonna teach this to you because it's beautiful and it's good and it's glorious and it helps you worship God and follow Him more. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of discipleship is very different where my dad and I, I I gotta be careful not to speak for him too much, but, but he felt very much like the discipleship he received was, this is what CRC people do. You need to learn this. And uh, he never really felt like we're teaching this because it's good and true and
2: beautiful. Yeah. I think that that's a, a really important insight because some of what's going on, I sense to be some, a little bit generational where, um, what you're talking about, your dad experienced, even for me as a pastor of this church, that generation, it's very common for them to say, well, I hated catechism class. Mm-hmm. It was dry and it was taught by somebody who just said, you have to learn this because it's good. And it was, it was something that they loathed. And so then that being my parents' generation, what they did in turn was, um maybe throw the baby out with the bathwater that's right and and so even like i'm looking back when i'm in high school when you're taking catechism and i don't i don't want to you know i love the church that i grew up in so i'm not going to i don't want to be critical because this is also a denominational thing where it's i sense to me some of the materials that you get where they're they're teaching the catechism they're working so hard at making the catechism interesting working so hard at making the catechism relevant that it actually kind of distracts from it where mm-hmm. you're doing different like projects or you're doing different, you know, some of the, the the materials that I've even taught as a youth leader that you get from faith alive is like, it's kind of learning the catechism, but it's, it's really trying to make it spiced up, relevant, catch their attention. And, and it ends up just kind of distracting from it. And, um, and so I think that's a little bit of, of what's going on too. Is that you have a generational swing, where where it can go back and forth. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I
0: I think we're we're in that, and and it's also a caution for us. I think, too, uh, because now we're trying to kind of swing the pendulum back the other direction. I think. Um, our generation and trying to say, no, we need to be discipling. We need to be training people in God's word and in the confessions. Um, And uh, for me, I I keep that caution in the back of my mind that I don't want to disciple in a way that comes across like that either. Right. We want to disciple with life and energy and, and trying to figure out the bigger, the bigger issue. And, And I don't have any answers for that either. Drew, that familiarity breeds contempt thing because it's there. That temptation is always there in any situation. And, uh, and so trying to make sure we, we fight against that, even as we're training and discipling
2: our people and our kids. Yeah. But like what you, what you just said is huge. The, the relational aspect, the discipleship aspect, um, where it isn't just, we're going to have a factory of, People that we produce using these materials like that's there needs to be the relational component to it. That is that I'm convinced is huge. And my wife, when she was in college, she served with the Navigators student ministry. And so she's experienced one on one discipleship. That's kind of the core of what the Navigators do. And so through meeting her and, and, and we're very passionate about that and the need for the need for that personal relational discipleship taking place it can't just be a a you know i even think about my own profession of faith experience in my church was there was 10 of us that did profession of faith together because we were a fairly large class but it, it was just sort of like okay we have a big batch of people and we're you know we're we're just sort of producing like the factory here's our new professions of faith and it can't it can't look like that i don't think yeah yeah, I, I,
0: I'm i uh, increasingly more convinced and I have a hard time. Nobody, people aren't ready to buy into my whole, but I'm increasingly convinced that all discipleship moving forward needs to be much more focused on one-on-one rather than in batches. And uh, I read, and I, I'm not going to even share a link to this or whatever, but I read an article a couple of weeks ago on why Sunday school has failed the church and uh, it was really interesting, and it was giving statistics about how many kids attended Sunday school and then ended up leaving the faith that it hasn't actually done a good job of discipling people. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. and I look back over youth ministry and, you know, even Willie and I's relationship, that was all one-on-one stuff, meeting at, actually, I think it was Hardee's, which was probably really unhealthy. Meeting at parties and opening up the Book of Romans and going yeah. through it, just talking about life and saying, "Hey, I listened to this. What do you think about this?" and just conversations yeah. that were unstructured, meeting meeting people where they're at. It just seems like that really is the most effective form of discipleship. And if we can try to figure out how to do that better in our churches, I think we will go a long way. And that's one of the things that I've been encouraging more and more. You know, it's coming up Scott Vanderplug and um, Oh, why did I forget his name? Um, but anyways, 222 discipleship is uh, is all a, a a really heavy emphasis on one-on-one discipleship. And that's a, a really great model. Even if you're not using their materials, if you start thinking about how to implement that in your church more, I think I think that'll be helpful.
2: Yeah, I appreciated that about um, David Bosher's message at the Abbot. Convention where he was talking about so often... So often conservative people are good at saying what we don't want and what isn't good, and he's saying, "Well, we we also need to be articulating what we do want," and that was really an emphasis of his. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really
1: true, and I I have to say all this, not necessarily to qualify what I said, but uh, I I actually had a, a couple of really good Sunday school teachers, probably several really good Sunday school teachers, um, but the the problem was, and this wasn't with every Sunday school teacher, but when you're using material um you know from faith alive or whatever organization doesn't doesn't really matter um are you capturing the essence of what the catechism is teaching or not and more often than not i i tend to think the material that we get in you know to teach the catechism tends to be it's like you say Drew it's more distracting than anything else and uh also when you get catechism teachers who are teaching you this because of their history, oh, we're supposed to teach this, but they're not doing it out of a love for what they teach. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's the crux of the matter here too. Um, you, my, some of my favorite, uh, you know, Bible teachers mentors have been those who really love the material that they're imparting to me, and I think that's a, a big key here to, to discipleship success as well.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, I've been having a lot of those conversations lately. Um, it all comes down to the teacher um, and the discipler, right? A, a bad discipler can take really, really good curriculum and make it really, really bad. <laughs> and a really good teacher, and not even a really good teacher, just a good teacher, a good discipler, can take mm-hmm. any curriculum and make it good. Even if it's bad, like teaching wrong things, you can take those wrong things and help people understand that and bring them into truth. So it really comes yeah. down to the person doing the discipleship.
2: That's true.
0: Yeah, have you have you seen uh, in your church, Drew? Are you guys you you mentioned having this kind of history of one-on-one discipleship? Are you guys working on uh, implementing that in Platt a little bit?
2: Yeah. So um, this is where I maybe qualify some of what I, I said. Um, I, one of the greatest joys of this past year has been a a, a small group of guys in our church who. Uh, committed to we're, we're calling it a growth group where um there's a group of us that get together twice a week and we pray together, we listen to scripture together and then just talk about we sort of encourage each other towards outreach. And that actually uh, grew out of uh, organizing that kind of grew out of it, there is I do have one um hesitation when it comes to one-to-one to one discipleship where I was I was trying to do a lot of it and um what, I, what I'm finding, this so this is my one hesitation, is that in the church context, and maybe it's especially in South Dakota, the one-to-one uh, context, and especially for men, can be pretty intimidating. And I don't know if it's because, oh, I'm with the pastor, um, but, but I wasn't seeing a lot of fruit from it for whatever reason, and maybe I just need to grow as a, a, in discipleship. That could be it, too. Um, but, but what I have found is that if, if I say, okay, guys, we're going to get together and there's going to be like four or five of us, then they're a lot more like, you're still going to be intentional about, okay, this is for discipleship, but there is a, um, I don't know, uh, there's less of an intimidation factor to it. And, um, and, and I think that maybe has been helpful to me to say, yeah, I believe in in the one-to-one discipleship and I still will do that on the side. So maybe in the group context, I notice something or or something comes up where I I sort of file it away in my head and say, okay, I'm going to get together with that guy and we're just going to talk about that together. So there's still going to be the one-to-one aspect along with it. But at the same time, when you look at the way that Jesus uh, discipled, He, he had a group of guys. He had 12 guys that he, that he gathered together. And, um, I think there's a place for that also. So while not, not having the batch mentality of, uh, but yet saying, okay, the group context, it's not just me shaping these guys. They're shaping each other. They're, um, you know, I, I might still be leading the group, but everybody's kind of playing a different part in us growing together. So so yeah, but it's been an emphasis. My my wife continues to to have different younger girls that she meets up with, and um, and 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 it, it's so it's so much not a Christian reformed thing to do, that it's pretty hard to, like when you describe it, especially to to the older generation, they they kind of think, well, that sounds nice, but. Because they haven't seen it or it wasn't a part of their church experience, it's just hard to get it to gain traction, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, I've experienced that same thing. And I think I think it's a good word, too, that um, I, th- I think there's more than just a one-on-one discipleship is a good thing. I have found, though, this is just a, an anecdote, uh, for one-on-one discipleship with guys, uh, men in particular— it's it's really helpful to do one on one discipleship things while you're doing something else, so like eating a hot ham and
2: cheese at Hardee's. Yeah,
0: yeah, That's that right. helps too. Or well, I would take Willie for walks. There's there's one walk yeah. that he remembers very distinctly <laughs> that was a lot longer than he was yes. planning on. He got blisters, yeah. but walking and talking, or fishing, or working on a car and talking, yeah. and uh, and you know, it's not always like sitting at a coffee shop looking each other in the eyes, uh, yeah. guys aren't always wired that way and so some guys like we can just walk walk through the woods and that makes it way less intimidating and you can have um i figured that out early especially with teenage guys if i ever had to (laughs) that was part of willie and i's long walk if i ever had to rebuke them it worked so much better to go for a walk somewhere because you're like side by side and uh, you could have a really good conversation with them so
1: only so many fields to run into (laughs) Yeah. Well, cool.
0: Well, you, you'd mentioned, uh, one of the joys was this men's group. Any other joys you've been experiencing over the last year in your church?
2: Um, it, that's, that's been especially, yeah, especially the, the main joy, especially the, this past year. Um, there's been, there's probably been more challenge and I guess it's the challenge of the seven year, like, so it's my seventh year. And, um, And no matter what, I think when you're going into ministry, especially as you're coming out of seminary, you wouldn't say like out loud, well, I'm going to come in here and, you know, I'm going to change some things. Like I'm going to preach and I'm preaching the word. And so, you know, things are really going to, it's going to go well. I wouldn't have said that, but yet I think subconsciously you at least kind of think that. And uh, and that hasn't really been the case for, for whatever reason. It's not like our, our, it's not like things are going poorly, um, but it does. You get to that that seven year point. And maybe this is why a lot of Christian reform churches church ministers left after seven years, because they just kind of get to that point where they're like, OK, am I having an effect here? Am I like accomplishing anything? And um, and that thought has been with me more. So, again, that that that's kind of the flip side to your question. where there are joys that trying to focus on, but also dealing with that. Okay. Is this, am I bearing fruit? And is this, yeah, that's been the challenge this past year. I think it's important. Uh, this is one of the things,
0: and I, I'm only in year five. Um, but, but I've had some of that same challenge myself and, uh, uh, so I always recommend this talk to anybody. It's uh, Alistair Begg. It's called The Dangers and Delights of uh, Long-Term Pastoral Ministry or something like that. It's it's a talk at a pastor's conference. Uh, super helpful. Every Anytime I start feeling discouraged in ministry, I go listen to it because he has a lot of a lot of good wisdom in there. But, but in that talk, he says that the average t- lifespan of a pastor in a church is five to seven years. Like most pastors leave after f- in that five to seven year mark. Um, but then he said the statistics, and I don't know how they f- figure out these statistics, show that the pastor's most effective years of ministry are from the years um, seven to 10. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and he said, so like, he said, all these pastors are like, right, they leave right as they're like catching their stride and getting into the point of like actually having an effect. And uh, I have no idea how they get those statistics. Um, but. But there's something to there being that, that mark where, yeah, you're looking back, you're going, I sure was hoping things would be different by now. Yeah. And uh, and you're like, I've been here five, seven years and I'm still having the same conversations that I had five, seven years ago. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and you start wondering, yeah, I mean, ministry's all always got that challenge to it where you, you, if, if you stop and look around too much, you're like, am I, am I doing anything, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, that's uh yeah, it's one of those things that we we you you mentioned youth ministry. Were you in youth ministry before you came
2: into Platt? Uh, only for a short time. While I was in seminary, I served the there's a Christian Reformed Church uh, near Westminster and I served there as a, a, a junior high youth leader. And so I I got just a little brief taste of youth ministry. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, I was just gonna say, like, you know, I was eleven years at my last church, right? And and I, you know, the first uh four or five years definitely were very much like I don't think anything's happening, you know. And then all of a sudden God just kind of blows things up and, and
2: yeah. things
0: go really well. And yeah. so i kind of pushed through that before, but every every time it still feels like a hard a hard hurdle to um yeah, because you don't you know I, I was thinking so uh this past Sunday I had off. Uh, it was the end of a vacation week. And when I have a Sunday off, um, thankfully, a church next to us was ordaining uh, their new pastor. So I got to go be part of his ordination service and and sit under the ministry of the word. It, it was really great. But the passage, the sermon was on 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 1 through 6. And, uh, and I thought it was really interesting. It's talking about Um, preaching to people, basically, who have hard hearts and and they're blind. And uh, and Paul says, you know, when we preach to them, we're not going to do it through craftiness. We're not going to do it through cunning or deceit, but we're going to do it through openly speaking the truth. And, And then later on, he says, and we won't lose heart. And I thought, you know, That's because it's really easy to lose heart in this and say like, I've been openly speaking the truth. I've been preaching it and it just, it's not doing it. And, and we always have this temptation to try to use craftiness and cunning Mm -hmm. to try to make the truth more effective. We think we are. And Paul's like, no, I'm just openly speak the truth. You're going to be discouraged. Don't lose heart because the gospel is the light of God. It shines on heart. You know, it, Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, oh, that was a good, good reminder for me that yeah. we just keep going and we're going to be tempted to lose
2: heart. Yeah. God, well, sorry. and and I know you guys talk often about different, you know, denominational, denominational, cultural questions. And from my vantage point, it, it seems to me like kind of in the 90s, 2000s, that that kind of happened in a lot of our churches where the growth leveled off. Maybe things started to slow down and, and it felt like, um, to me, um, a lot of churches started to sort of reach for some of those levers that, okay, this isn't working anymore. So we have to, we have to be different. We have to do something different. We have to get this program, that program. I remember when I was in high school, our church did 40 days of purpose. The purpose-driven life craze was going on at that point. And, um, And so reaching for some of those things that were going to be the solution because, you know, we have to change. We have to be different. Um, That's part of being reformed, always reforming. So we have to, you know, think outside the box. But then, um, like, I've thought a lot about the, 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 the popularity of or the influence of somebody like, like I mentioned before, John Piper. Where um even the class that I was a part of going into Westminster, they have a, a new student reception where everybody introduces themselves and they say, well, why are you here? And um, even the faculty were amazed at the end of it, They where they said, I think about half of the students here during their lack of a better word, their testimony mentioned the name John Piper. And and they're like, maybe maybe we should send him a check. Uh, and and we don't even know if, we don't even know if he would be happy that you're going to Westminster. But, um, and there's, you know, there's things about him that, that even I have problems with. I don't, I don't agree with some of the things that, that obviously he's a Baptist, but, but what I have thought about is, well, what is it? And it, and and I think it's because in him, you, you have the, the theology, but you have the passion and the clarity. And I, I wonder if that's where some of us, some of our churches, some of our ministers, that's where we lost our way a bit, where we we lost the 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 fervent loving passion for what we what we believe and and saying no oh, this is this is good and this is not forcing it down your throat but but just presenting it in its in its beauty and in its glory. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, and that's the different. People feel the difference between forcing something down someone's throat, or speaking it with passion and laying it out before them and saying here, uh, whether it's the gospel, and you can you can paint that picture as beautiful and just lay it out. You're not forcing it down someone's throat, but you say here it is, take it or leave it, right? Um, but it's the same thing with with doctrine as well. I I, I never want to like jam it down somebody's throat. But but I I really am always working really hard to help them see the beauty mm-hmm. and the power and uh, and I still I'm very much I, I want people to see how like all of these doctrines connect together and then how they affect like small decisions you make every day really and uh, and make it practical but and right. so people feel the difference
2: in that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Making it, helping them see that this is practical. This has, this has very practical, this isn't just like, Oh, an interesting theology lesson. This matters for life.
1: Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jason, like what you were saying, you know, you lay it out before them. And then if, if, obviously if it's going to bear fruit, if the spirit is going to work, then it's because it is the power of God to those who believe. And that's, that's kind of, what the second Corinthians passage was talking about. If our gospels veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And I mean, Paul uses these metaphors all the time, you know, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Um, so I think that's the hope that we rest in knowing that our discipleship is never in vain. Yeah, amen.
0: Amen. And, and you know, this all ties back to, and I'll, I guess we'll just have to quote John, well, it's actually not John Piper, but it's a one that John Piper quotes all the time. I think it's Robert Murray McShane who said, uh, you know, what your congregation needs most is a God besotted man. And, uh, you know, your congregation doesn't need the highly effective speaker, um, or the strategist or whatever, but someone who's in love with God. And, uh, and then when you are in love with God, um, then you become an effective speaker. <laughs> you become an effective strategy. All of those things end up flowing out of that. But if you try to become those things apart from just a love for God, who He is, um, they they just dry up. Um, but but if you truly love God, then it just kind of begins to overflow into everything you say and do, how you lead, how you teach, how you disciple, and uh, and the goal and I can't is, be faked. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's no faking it, right? No. I, I said that, that was the beauty of me spending 11 years in youth ministry is like, there's no faking it with teenagers. They just have no time for anybody faking something. And if they smell a whiff of fake, they just, you're done. And, uh, and adults, the adults are a little eat more easily faked. I, I'll, <laughs> but, but in general, you can't people, people can sniff it. And, uh, and so we, yeah, we really as pastors, ministers, uh, and I would say congregants, there's a lot of different people listen to the podcast uh priority one is to fall in love with god and then live that out and that'll help you become a a good discipler that'll help you become a good parishioner father mother daughter and uh and everything flows from that well
2: that's encouraging
0: well we're coming to the end already drew this conversation's really flown by uh and appreciate it but we always give everybody an opportunity to kind of give some final words we have a, a really wide listener base a lot wider than i was ever expecting it to be um so uh, i always say we've got pastors and elders and deacons and lay people and soccer moms and college students who are all listening to this so what kind of final words do you want to want to leave them with
2: well uh thank you for that i, I don't i don't know if um I, I guess the one thing that comes to my mind is a question that you had asked um where where you're asking about what does it take for reformation in, in any church? And I was thinking about that question a lot. And when you think about what reformation actually means, you know, the phrase that was used and that I know you guys have talked about, it's not just being reformed, it's being reformed according to the word of God. Mm-hmm. And the importance of, well, what does it take for re- reformation then? It takes a, a continued, renewed emphasis on God's word. And... Um, I know it's uh, it, it it's something that's emphasized by Carl Truman, professor at Grove City. Uh, he he loves to quote Martin Luther, where Luther famously talked about how the Reformation happened in Wittenberg, and he says the word did the work. Uh, he, I basically sat in the pub drinking beer with my friends, and while I was there, the word did everything. I did nothing, and um, that takes. Like we've been talking about in our discussion, that takes some faith because if it doesn't seem to be working, then you start to sort of have those doubts. So so continued, just a continued trust and faith in the faithful and passionate, uh, not only preaching, but teaching and discipling in the Word of God. And and like Willie was saying, it will not return void. And that's that's really what it takes. So that's even me preaching to myself somewhat.
0: Yeah. Amen. Well, that's a good reminder. Just uh, I remind people that with uh, daily devotions, too. Right. Oh, getting up and opening up God's Word and reading it every day. Um, you don't. I don't expect to after doing this for a long time. Walk away every day going my life was changed by this it you know you there's some mornings you walk away and you're like I don't even understand half I mean I'm a pastor and I don't even understand what was going on in that passage right now and uh um, but I trust that the the word's going to do the work in in my life if I keep doing this the god god's word is shaping transforming some days I walk away going wow that was really good that was powerful good reminder and other days I walk away going hmm I don't know what that was about um yeah. but we keep doing it faithfully trusting God to to do that work in our lives.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit like meals. Some meals are really, you remember them. And boy, that was really, really good. And other times, it's just what you needed to continue on.
0: That's all we have for this week. If you want to help us out and support the Messy Reformation, another thing you can do is sign up for our newsletter through Substack. That way, you'll get episodes and summaries sent directly to your email inbox. It will also give us the opportunity to communicate with our audience, which is one of the biggest struggles of a podcast. So head over to the Messy Reformation on Substack and sign up for our newsletter. Now, stay tuned next week for our conversation with Stuart DeYoung. But until then, don't forget this is Christ's church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So, keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine, Preach the word in season and out of season and keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.